1: What would you like the power
0: to do? Mobile
1: banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDIC.
0: Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons,
1: Go to PantheonPodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win. And just like that, you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package. And guess what, Rockers? You can enter every month. So just do
0: it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football
1: Welcome once again to another episode of Moments That Rock. Episode number, no clue. But nevertheless, this is a great little tale of island records from my original boss when I first started there in 1978. A gentleman by the name of Tim Clark. It was amazing to reconnect after all these years. So, we'll leave Tim to describe the rest. My name is Tim Clark and uh, i was born and brought up in uh, east africa in kenya and uh, i came to the uk in 1963 uh my my intention was to uh, be the next graham green or evelyn Waugh. i was going to be a writer uh and uh i started off i had a, a Uh, a little attic room in a boarding house in Earl's Court where I scribbled away. It took me a little while to realize that it was the swinging 60s, and I seemed to be missing out on most of it. And then another another thought struck me was that, God, this is a lonely profession, sitting in the garret, scribbling away. But the real clincher, the real, real clincher was when i realized that actually i was never going to be a graham green or an evelyn war or anything like them because i was missing one key ingredient catholic angst catholic angst and you know i was just too damn easygoing ever to be able to write with the sort of depth uh, that those two did and indeed uh, lots of uh, lots of artists, lots of songwriters do. It's true that uh, they really do need to have that depth of uh, that depth of feeling, the the black moments, if you like, uh, that are, that allow real creative spurts. So, desperate to pay my rent, I went to what was then known as a labour exchange, and they sent me to a little terraced house. In North London, near Kilburn, and I was interviewed by this ball of fire, this energetic little buzz box called David Betridge. and he took me on and gave me a job as a storeman or, or postboy, if you like. There I was, sent down to a cellar, a damp and dingy place, uh, where all the the records were kept, m- nearly all singles because that's what sold in those days to the Caribbean immigrants. And um, and so it was Blue Beat, uh, the forerunner of, of of ska, led on to Rocksteady and, and uh, reggae. I had no knowledge of uh, Caribbean music or Jamaican music, no knowledge at all. Uh, but I very, very quickly uh, grew to love it. Uh, and uh, it was interesting coming from Africa, uh, to be working in this uh, the Caribbean uh, milieu, I mean, really from uh, one African community uh, to another, uh, descended from uh, Africans. And, and I, just, I just sort of clicked with them. I loved the colors. I loved, I loved going to Brixton, where all the uh, houses and so on were, were painted in, in wonderful tropical colors. That was that was really my introduction uh, to music. That storeroom David Bettridge sent you to was Island Records. That was Island Records, 1965. It was a condemned building. I think Island lasted there about three or four years before uh, moving on to Niesden, uh, to what was called the Scout Hut. Uh, and again, we had a we had a much bigger store there, uh, and uh, and of course uh, Island was still was still. Really, mainly selling uh, Caribbean music and doing pretty well with it, my boy lollipop was uh, was island's first hit. It was followed by uh, by Jimmy Cliff, Keith and Enid uh, the, the whalers, of course, doing scar so that was that was really my my introduction to the music scene. What a lot of people don't realize was what incredible influence Jamaican music and Jamaican culture generally has had on British culture. You can think of the who, you can think of uh, you can think of the mods. I mean this is all hugely influenced uh, by Jamaican uh, culture and Jamaican music. And it was just fascinating to see uh, how young uh, white Brits would take uh, to this Jamaican culture. And of course, you listen you listen to youngsters even today, youngsters talking. And they still use words that are actually part of Jamaican patois, if you like. Out of all kilter, with the, the numbers of Jamaicans living here, uh, was this extraordinary influence. So Island Records was where, was where I really, really got into the music industry. But I was also fortunate that I, I started there when, oh gosh, there, there, Chris Blackwell, of course, didn't work in Neasden. Uh, the founder and owner of Island Records, uh, he worked in Oxford Street, where he was surrounded by girls in miniskirts. skirts. I mean, it was the 60s after all. And I occasionally got uh to to visit th- that office and um and, and just admire all those super cool people uh that that worked there. Uh and then of course I was banished back to uh, to to uh, Neasden and my cellar. I met great people. I met great, great Jamaican producers. It was probably when Ireland signed uh, John Martin that things really uh, started to change. We had an a guy called Guy Stevens, uh, very famous, very well-known, brilliant, absolutely brilliant talent. Uh, who signed so much and worked with so many. He had started the Sioux label here and was importing masters from America, uh, famously uh, Harlem Shuffle uh, uh, by Bob and Earl, but 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 many more than that. Um, and and so Ireland started to segue out of being just this uh, Jamaican label or Caribbean label, because we, we, we did have um, uh, Bayesian music, Calypso and so on. And indeed, we also had a, a bit of uh, religious music too. And famously, uh, we had rugby songs. Uh, rugby songs uh, actually saved, I believe it really did save Islands bacon because they sold so incredibly well and brought in lots of money. We, we also had, uh, dare I say it, Music to make love by, uh, and this was this was an album performed by Sid Lawrence and his orchestra, and it really was just orchestral music with a nice cover, and it sold bundles. And the other great seller at the time was Music to Strip By, and Music to Strip By came with a free G string, which David David Bertridge's wife, Jillie, I think at the time made considerable quantities of. Great stories from Tim Clark. And we'll be back with the uh, evolution of Island Records after this. So this, this idea of Island Records being this really, really super cool label, which, of course, it did become. Actually, the start of it uh, was, was underpinned by some pretty remarkable records that you just wouldn't have thought had anything to do with Ireland. But they certainly underpinned it. My own little thing with um, uh, the record, uh, with the rugby records, was in those days, you you couldn't actually uh, have the rude words, the swear words, etc., on the record. So we had to bleep them out. And my job on the first two records was to do the bleeping. This was all the beginning of Island Records. Chris and Guy Stevens and so on were busy w- working away with various artists. First of all, Spencer Davis came along, who was signed to Fontana. But then uh, Chris signed uh, uh, traffic to, uh, to the label, and they actually came out on, uh, on Island Records, on the Island label. Terry Ellis and Chris Wright had formed an agency. Chris uh, Wright was managing 10 years after and signed them to Decca. Terry brought Jethro Tull uh, to Ireland. I worked uh, reasonably closely with um, with Terry and Chrysalis on the marketing and so on of those uh, first Jethro albums. Uh, and their that, that, their trajectory was was uh, f- familiar to many. Uh, they'd started at uni, uh, putting uh, putting shows on. So Chrysalis was uh, was part of it. Uh, we we also, of course, worked closely with. Uh, Richard Branson and Virgin Virgin had its own uh success uh, but Ireland meantime was was really uh, uh, going along at, uh, at a at a great pace with a, a clutch of great artists and I think in 1972 uh in in the top 75 we had about 20 albums that included free traffic the music of course that had, that had come in king crimson so all of a sudden ireland from being this company known for ska became the coolest underground label uh in the country and it really was it was an incredibly cool cool company Bull names etc uh but um they they were fairly moribund at the time, some would say still are. We were just ahead of the game. I formed great friendships, great partnerships, people from from that time, and we still we still have an Island Records get together uh, every now and then, uh, attended by David Betteridge, Chris Blackwell, John Martin was certainly uh, somebody I, I worked closely with, and because it was a small company. Every time there was a promotion, I was sort of pretty well placed to apply for it. After the stores, I went on the road. I became a van rep. And van rep, gosh, that was exciting because we were still selling scar. And uh, I would drive round London calling on all of those places that had uh, large Caribbean uh, immigrant communities. So I'd be going to. Uh, uh, Brixton, and calling on Nat Cole's hairdresser shop, which actually had a record shop in the the back. I would call on Henry's art-related school of driving. I mean, he was a driving instructor, but in his living room, he he kept some records. And this was the art-related bit. And and of course, we, we called on all those wonderful markets, Ridley Road market, Shepherd's Bush Market. Uh, there, there was a uh, a famous shop called WG Stores. That was a hardware shop. But they realized that uh, actually there was a, an immigrant market that couldn't get scar. So they started stocking records and selling them uh, to that community. And I called on them for, the, oh, I think a good 18 months. It was exciting, but it also taught one an awful lot about marketing it also taught one an awful lot about the customers not the customers as in the retailers who obviously were the customers the first but the people themselves who were actually buying the records and i got to understand that i recognized fairly quickly that there was a young white community that was starting to get very involved uh, with uh, this Jamaican culture and that it was starting to show uh, up in their, in their own music. In the meantime, I had come off the road and went into production. Uh, that is not studio production, but in uh, ordering sleeves and records and so on and managing the stores. Uh so, I learned all about print and record uh, record manufacturing, etc, keeping records in stock, shouting at the uh, actually David Bettford was always always much better at shouting at the manufacturers than I ever was. It was a battle sometimes uh to get uh, records manufactured and then, as a kind of a natural progression, uh, I started to do marketing and I guess that probably, as far as my Island Records career was concerned, was the the most exciting bit, because I really did get to work pretty closely with people like Cat Stevens, with King Crimson, Roxy Music, with David Antovin, who became a lifelong friend, and subsequently my partner in IE Music. It was an extraordinary time. Cat Stevens, of course, uh, it was said of him that there was a... Um, A Cat Stevens album in every bedsit in the land occupied by a girl. He sold millions of albums. And I worked with him on his artwork and song that he so brilliantly created. And of course, I also got to know Paul Samuel Smith, who who produced uh, his album. And then, of course, along came Bob Marley. And this was Chris Blackwell's, I think, bravest move because he recognized that Bob was a rock star. And he simply said, we've got to treat him like a rock star. And we've got to set, spend the sort of money on his sleeves and his production as we would on Roxy Music or Cat Stevens. Got to be treated that way. Honestly, the industry, it, it, certainly the industry in Britain said, why are you doing that for, you know, reggae artist? They only sell singles. What what are you what are you doing? Well, uh, Chris stuck to his guns, and, and I was I, I'm I'm pleased to say that I shared his view. I'm pleased to say that I was very again very involved in, uh, in in helping to put the sleeves together and helping to do the marketing. I guess one of the standout concerts of my whole life was Bob Marley live at the Lyceum. It was an absolute moment. Uh, and a, a moment that, that, that I'll never forget. And, and uh, probably one of a, a handful. I mean, I can talk about Cat Stevens. I can talk about Grace Jones. Actually, I was really fortunate to see the Stacks tour at what was then the Hammersmith Odeon uh, with Otis Redding heading the bill. Uh, and that was certainly one of the great, great, great shows uh, of my life. Uh, but Bob, Bob just oh gosh he smashed it in front of what an audience of 1500 but but that audience just took the message and it, and from that moment uh the 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 bandwagon really did uh start to roll we did spend the money i mean the sleeve that was the, the zippo lighter we could only make 10 10000 copies of it but it cost us a fortune <laughs> uh and 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 of course it was also the time of gatefold sleeves of Cut out sleeves of, uh, I, I mean, famously, Jethro Tull's stand up sleeve had the die cast figures of the band that popped up when you opened the, the gatefold. Absolutely brilliant. And we could never, ever, ever have kept pace with production uh, had we not had this great relationship with a printer called EJ Day. And old man Day, Claude Day, actually spent hours figuring out in his little machine shop how to uh, uh how to actually get the the stand up the cut out manufactured and glued by machine and he did it i can't remember how many weeks the uh, stand up was at number 1 i i'm inclined to say 6 but it could have been more anyway it was a brilliant uh, second album rather uh, and i think islands first number 1 Great stories in this episode of Moments That Rock with Tim Clark, who was Managing Director of Island Records when I started there in 1978. He went on to great things managing Robbie Williams and people like that. And we will have more from Tim in weeks to come. Thank you for listening, subscribe, and we'll see you next week.